Section 5 of The Bachelor's Club by Israel Sangwell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3 Hamlet Up to Date, Part 2. One o'clock in a foggy night. No watchman proclaimed the tidings, for it was modern London over which the fog lay, and a contemporary night patrol speaks only from the soles of his boots. But the bell of St. Paul's told the hour and the fog needed no telling. Hell is a city very much like London, as Shelley hath it, but never more so than in February, when the weird street lamps serve but to render the darkness visible. Tonight the fog wrapped the metropolis in its yellow folds so thickly that unfortunate pedestrians despaired of home and even of England and beauty. The very cabmen had, as a rule, preferred their beds to crawling with smarting eyes through the Egyptian darkness. Up till midnight torch-bearers were to be had, but now even these men of light and leading were inaccessible, counting their gains in the doss-houses. Harold Ross groped his way along, looking for a hansom. He had retired early from a gay supper-party in one of the inns of the court, taken a few steps eastward in search of a remembered cab rank, then lost his bearings, and was now approaching Fleet Street by way of a slow succession of buildings and objects quite unfamiliar to him. He knew the world's great cerebral nerve as well as most Londoners, but he knew it by perches and roods. In a fog you have to feel your way by inches. You see your own street as under a microscope, and are astonished at the unknown world that opens upon you at every step. But to Harold Ross, the revelation of Fleet Street and all its minutiae of brick wall, iron railing, and quaint portal and alley was not sufficiently interesting to compensate for the choking in his throat and the exacerbation of his eyeballs. He made up his mind to fight his way back to the supper party and abandoned the hope of reaching his comfortable bed in the neighborhood of Regent's Park. Naturally, at this point, he caught sight of a handsome beacon-fire looming ahead, and making for it, found that it was one of a series, smouldering sullenly through the murky atmosphere, but flashing to him the message of hope, as the news of the return of Agamemnon was flashed to Argos. He concluded that he had wandered away from Fleet Street and stumbled upon a cab-rank unawares. He hailed the first driver, in more than one sense. The vehicle was engaged— Still light-hearted, he accosted the second. He, too, was engaged. Harold's heart began to sink. Something was going on, and this file of futile hansoms was but a symbol of it. A steady progress down the rank convinced our weary traveller that to him that these hansoms were but a mirage, their beacon fires but wills o' the wisp. What was going on, he discovered, was writing— Halfway down, the resplendent offices of the Daily Wire threw an electric light on the mystery. Myrmidians of the press were busy settling the affairs of the universe. The gods of the modern Olympus were launching their columned lightings and measuring out praise and blame. The smudgy sons of Vulcan were manufacturing their cheap thunderbolts. When the gods and giants had fulfilled their dread functions, they would be driven home to their villas in Cambir, well by constant Jehus who made the usual reduction on taking a quantity. Harold Ross passed down the ghostly line, tempting the buttoned-up phantoms and receiving good-natured banter. It did not matter to him what he paid, nor which smart journalist suffered. 
In great crises like these, the best of men are selfish, and Harold Ross was far from being the best of men. He was the thriftless son of a famous man of letters, a poor rich creature, fond of chicken and champagne and careless chat, a lover of literature and art, but a mere dilettante, a being without backbone, a dreamer of dreams, lounging lazily through life, the prey of ransom impulses and flickering ambitions, never putting his hand to the plough without drawing it back, in brief, one of those men whose lives are literally the dream of a shadow. The last hansom had been left deserted by its driver. Harold waited patiently for his return, refusing to extinguish his last hope and half forgetting the lapse of minutes in one of his customary reveries. His thoughts were sad and compassionate. He asked himself why these poor men should have been tarrying there in the wretched fog and cold whilst he, who had never in his life done a stroke of work for his fellows, had been sipping Chablis and swallowing oysters in a warm and happy atmosphere of good fellowship. For the thousandth time he wallowed in the luxury of pity and high unselfish thought, conscious all the while he would never move a finger to help anything or anybody in the world. His reflections were ended by a tall, shabby figure lurching up against him. The odor of the fog was momentarily ousted by a waft of whiskey. "'Pardon, Governor,' was jerked in thick, hoarse tones from the figure, already grown phantasmal half a yard off. "'Didn't know you were there. Oh, stand still, my beauty.' There was a sound of equine impatience mingled with padding. "'Are you the driver of this cab?' "'Yes, sir.' not at your service oh come now don't say that i'll give you what you like to take me to regent's park wouldn't advise canal to-night sir but not surprised you're thinking of suicide night like this would reckon asile a murderer to the gallows it'll be the death of me in any case if i don't get home said harold rather struck by the man's perfect english marred only by little latin expletives in the brackets come what will you take i should say whiskey neat sir if it were a more christian-like hour but as the publics are all closed thank you for nothing <laughs> unless you'll take me to the club and the gaunt driver leered with a ghastly grin through the gloom come come said harold impatiently i'll give you a sovereign to drive me to regent's park sir i'm engaged my hire lies yonder he flicked his whip in the direction of the Daily Wire offices. Whoa, Bucephalus. Two sovereigns. Sir, I am a cap man of honor. Still, I cannot afford more than a sovereign's worth of such luxury. Jump in. Harold obeyed with alacrity. The driver addressed him through the trap door. You won't back out of it afterwards for a couple of bob. What's fair isn't fair in this weather, he added, chuckling. It isn't. The four-mile radius is sponged out of existence. Drive on, my good fellow, and my man shall give you some grog at the end of the journey. He let down the window, boxing himself up from the fog, and relapsed into reverie as the cab crawled cautiously onwards. How long he mused he knew not, but when the cab stopped suddenly with a shock and a tremor, he turned the door-handle and jumped out mechanically, thinking they had arrived. Before he had time to look around, the gaunt driver was at his elbow with a lighted lantern in his hand. "'Poor Brute's injured himself, I fear,' he said more soberly than he had yet spoken. 
Not my fault. Walked into a pillar box. Bruised his scapula. Gee up, my pegasus. Bear up, Bucephalus. He caught hold of the bridle and tried to lead the animal along. It made a few steps, then paused, breathing heavily. Harold groaned. What's to be done? I'm afraid, sir, said the cabman philosophically, after forcing the horse another few paces, that this is one of the situations in which the only thing to do is to ask what is to be done. How far are we? About halfway. Fortunately, if I am not mistaken, we are only within five minutes of the stable. I will lead Bucephalus there and forfeit one sovereign and the grog. And what if I refuse to pay? said Harold, choking with annoyance and fog. Then, sir, I shall commence to swear. I have the filthiest and most extensive vocabulary in London. The unexpected threat so tickled Harold that he burst out laughing. <laughs> what is to become of me? he said, gasping from defect of breath and excess of fog. I live near the stables, sir, and if my humble hospitality can be of any service to you, it is freely at your disposal. I can work off the second sovereign that way. You are indeed a rare bird, laughed Harold, the bohemian adventurous instinct taking strong hold of him. I will accept your hospitality as freely as it is offered, that is, at a charge of a sovereign. It is a bargain, said the gaunt cabman. He strode forwards gallantly, holding the bridle of Bucephalus with one hand and his lantern in the other. The horse labored along no less gallantly, and Harold trudged at the side of the twain silently, but in no morose humor, scenting the new experience as keenly as the war-horse the battle. In ten minutes' time he was following his host up the creaking, rickety stairs of a slum attic. Streaks of light descended upon them through the chinks of a cracked, blistering door. "'Why, who's wasting my paraffin?' said the cabman. "'Surely Jenny has gone to bed.' In another moment he threw open the door, disclosing a large but dingy garret with whitewashed sloping ceiling, dimly lighted by an oil lamp standing in the center of a bare deal table. A pale woman rose as the door opened, with a piece of calico in her hand. "'Back so soon, father?' "'Up so late, Jenny?' "'Yes, father, I expected you home by half-past three, and as I had a lot of sewing to finish I thought I might as well sit up and do it.' and it's such a fearful night that I thought you'd like some hot coffee when you—' She paused, catching sight of the stranger. "'Jenny, my love, this is Mr. Fair, a gentleman who cannot find his way home in the fog. So I have offered him the shelter of our lowly roof. Mr. Fair, this is my daughter, Jenny. Be careful, sir, or you'll bang your head against the lowly roof in question. Sublimi ferum serida veritas in medio tusimus ibis.' Come into the middle of the room, and your crown will be safe. Harold Ross bowed to the cabman's daughter in the garret's roof. He walked towards the bright fire, and, having warmed his hands and sloughed his overcoat, he cast a curious glance at the strange couple who stood exchanging whispers. For the first time he saw how hollow-eyed, thin-cheeked, and puny-chested a man this guide and companion was. The lips were full and red, the nose was aquiline and carmine. The brow was high and broad, crowned by masses of tangled gray hair. Dissipation was stamped on his features. 
the big d of drink was branded like a curse upon his forehead his skeleton was so thinly padded with flesh that it reminded harold of a scenario the daughter's look was no less cadaverous but the refinement of her face the unflinching earnestness of her sad eyes spoke rather of poverty and pain than of culpable physical bankruptcy she might have been any age between thirty and thirty-five she was slim and tall like her father but her print dress was as clean and neat as his coat was greasy and crinkled she put down her sewing and turning towards harold said with exquisite courtesy you will let me give you some coffee mr fair the cabman seemed to chuckle with his eyes as his daughter addressed the visitor by name oh thanks said harold i am freezing the coffee was served in huge clumpy cups and the specific aroma which the bon vivant visitor loved was absent still it was hot and not unpleasant to swallow jenny spread a coarse tablecloth for the edification of the guest and cut some thin bread and butter of which harold did not partake and now jenny you must go to bed said the cabman to the deuce with your sewing i am rich to-night long live king fog oh father give it me pleaded the woman impulsively and her eyes told the story not of cupidity or rapacity but of anxious dread then she blushed with infinite delicacy at the betrayal of the family skeleton i want you to make me a birthday present she said laughing nervously my dear the pound of the pound s d is in somebody else's pocket just now there are two of them but i have no fear as to the transfer good night jenny she bent down and kissed him as he sat at the table then with a good night mr fair sorry the accommodation is so bad she flitted noiselessly through a door in the wall and harold heard the key grating in the lock my daughter said the cabman proudly has always had her own bedroom it is the one luxury she has been able to retain from which remark said harold with interest i gather that you have seen better nights precisely noctus ambroising sir he got up and went to a cupboard and had a tussle with the handle which refused to open the door jenny must have locked it he said at length and the glasses are there i had intended offering you some whisky he drew a flask from an inner breast pocket not for me thank you said harold another cup of coffee will do for me thank you i can help myself in that case sir said his host there can be no objection to my sipping at the fountainhead and he put a bottle to his lips can i offer you a cigar said harold suddenly bethinking himself that he would like to smoke of course sir the cabman said selecting one from his guest's case and kindling it over the lamp it's not often now i enjoy another man's cigar by more than the scent of it but do not let me keep you up there is your bed you will find it clean if hard trust jenny for that he pointed to the furthermost corner of the gloomy room for the first time harold noticed a sort of curtained alcove my good fellow you're very kind but i can't take your bed i can very well smoke by the fire just what i was thinking of doing sir 
A cigar like this to my whiskey is not to be bartered for a bed of down, much less a shakedown. Confound the lamp, he added, as he noticed the dwindling flame. The wick wants trimming. He scarcely drew off the lamp glass and operated on the cotton with the scissors which lay on his daughter's calico, apparently careless of the fact that her work would smell of the lamp. What a nuisance to have no gas, he said, adding with a splendid American accent. Yes, I have struck all, but it's tarnation little recommendation in the old country, I guess. He laughed bitterly. Jenny ought to be run after by the British peerage. The lamp burned steadily for a moment, then the flame began to sink. Curse it all, it's the oil that's run out, said the cabman. I'll keep the fire up. He threw some coals on it and choked what flame there was. But I haven't got any more paraffin, and I don't suppose you'll like to sit up in the dark. Come, sir, you needn't be afraid of being robbed and murdered here, though nobody in the world knows of your presence here tonight, and the opportunity is excellent. Not that I should have the slightest scruples in killing you, but there's Jenny to square. Jenny, sir, has old-fashioned notions, and what is worse, she has absolutely no sense of humor. Jenny takes life seriously, I in the mere spirit of frolicsome irresponsibility. In that spirit I should take yours. A lamp flickered weirdly. The fire smoldered dully. The room grew dimmer and dimmer. The spasmodic dying lamp flame threw the strange gaunt form of the host in ghastlier outlines on the frowsy ceiling and the whitewashed walls. The end of his cigar was a circlet of fire in the gloom. Harold shivered. Decidedly, it would be pleasanter to go to bed like a Christian. He had not the least fear of robbery or assassination. The vein of queerness in his own composition gave him the instinct to understand the strange being at his side. He knew he had to do with a harmless bohemian exiled for his sins from his native land. To sit upon a hard wooden chair in the dark garret might be romantic, but it were nicer to lose consciousness beneath a counterpane. He went to the window, lifted up a corner of the striped glazed blind to see if haply the fog had lifted. There was nothing to be seen but an ocean of opaque mist. With a gesture of resignation he betook himself to the alcove, drawing aside the curtain which slid on a ring overhead. An iron pallet was revealed, over one corner of which were two triangular bookshelves fixed in the angle of the wall. Not without curiosity, Harold's eye rested upon the books. They seemed familiar. The title of one of them caught his gaze, but ere he could be sure he had read it aright, the light failed, and the room was plunged in a dusky fog. "'You are looking at my books,' came in strange sardonic tones from the darkness. "'Yes,' said Harold. "'I thought—' The jet of flame leapt up defiantly and shone steadily for a moment in the face of death. Harold uttered a cry. "'How strange!' he said. "'Why, you have all my father's books!' The flame sank, spurted, sank, and rose no more. There was a moment of intense silence. "'Are you Harold Ross?' came in strange tones from the depths behind him. Yes, I am the novelist's son. 
and now you know who i am pray tell me in return who are you he turned and looked towards where the thin haggard figure had stood but there was nothing visible through the gloom except very very faint white wreaths of smoke curling fantastically round a terrible eye of fire a strange eerie sensation came over him his blood ran chill from the centre of the vaporous impalpable thing there came in sepulchral tones the words harold i am thy father's ghost harold's pulse stood still preparatory to making a spasmodic spurt then he turned away nervously from the white film and laughed uneasily he surmised at once that the man had been an actor in his better nights and had thus acquired his fund of quotations and his command of language good and bad come said harold that's not a fair return for my confidences i told you who i am tell me who you are again the voice came from the centre of the curling rings i am your father's ghost harold laughed resignedly well keep your secrets fortunately my father is alive but if he were dead i hardly think he would be reduced to driving a hansom in the next world he drives a handsome bargain in this sneered the smoke rings if you mean he only allows the publishers a commission and he drove a publisher's hack hard continued the smoke harold's blood recovered its warmth what do you know about my father as much as a ghost usually knows about the author of its being that is all what do you mean said harold his breath coming fast and his chest contracting i am your father's ghost and wrote all his books the devil precisely that like the jackal is another name for it harold rushed at the sardonic smoke rings on chastisement bent but barked his thighs against the table and the room rang with hollow laughter my dear harold facts are facts from the noise of a collision between yourself and my hospital board i gather that they are also news i should have thought that there would have been no secrets between you and your illustrious father good god man are you mad said harold huskily the critics think me a genius said the mocking mephistopheles i know little or nothing of my father's private relations said harold vehemently but i know that you are a liar that is what i'm telling you my lies have filled your father's volumes and his pockets all his eulogists say that i am one of the greatest liars of the age ah you're drunk said harold contemptuously not now retorted the cabman but if i had not been a disciple of bacchus neither your father nor myself would have been found on the rank we now occupy good god this cannot be true my father do you think said the smoke indignantly that i would tell a lie for nothing me an old pressman who began life as a penny a liar the room was not warm but harold's agony exuded from his forehead in beads of perspiration his voice was hoarse with a terrible fear that the liar was telling the truth the conceptions of a lifetime were tottering what proof have you of this he demanded fiercely 
Proof? A thousand proofs, said the smoke fiend sardonically. The proofs of all your father's novels. He destroyed the manuscripts. Ross's manuscripts will never be sold at Sotheby's. But in his confident carelessness, he took no steps to prevent me retaining the proofs. The corrections are all in my handwriting. Of course, he could not correct his books himself. They were not his own children. Tomorrow you shall see them. No, I must see them now. I cannot rest with this horrible suspicion on my mind. Have you cat's eyes? queried the ghost. No, but poke the fire, man. I shall see by its light. The devil stirred up the smouldering coal till it stuck out a mocking tongue of flame and revealed the substance of a grinning phantom, which went to the table drawer and drew out a heap of printed slips. Harold knelt by the broken fender to examine them. His shadow was an amorphous, unhuman blotch upon his whitewashed wall. It was a horrible moment. He let the proofs fall from his hand and put it to his eyes. The writing was not his father's. When he spoke again, his voice was tremulous and subdued, and charged with respect and pity. "'Forgive me for my offensive language,' he said. "'If this be true, and you cannot expect me to believe it without further and different proofs, you are a much-wronged man. I can give you plenty of proofs of that.' said the ghost. There was a long pause before Harold spoke again. Then he broke the silence suddenly, and there was a note of hope in his voice. My father's new novel was published last week. You could not have written that. No, I did not. When I said I had written all his books, I was speaking loosely. His last three books were by another hand, in your father's factory. Is it not a commonplace of criticism that your father is now in his second manner? Harold grunted. It was too true. The second manner, perused the devil implacably, in the critic's mouth implies that the author of the earlier manner is dead. New experience, fresh ideals, have gradually modified his first literary personality until it is completely molted. So, too, your father gave up the ghost at his first period and hired another. The critics say he has struck a rich new vein of character and incident, and a maturer manner, and shaken off the last crudities of adolescent genius for the full ripeness of the autumn grain. The first part is true, but I happen to know that the new ghost is barely out of his teens, I would never recognize my maturity, even if I had been fifty years in bottle. Again the drunkard's hollow laughter reverberated through the room and sent a shudder through the listener's being. Harold could scarce longer battle with the belief that his father was a rogue. His filial instincts bristled defiance, but his susceptibility to new impressions was a powerful ally on the side of conviction. Speak on. "'Tell me all the story,' he muttered. "'The story of stories. "'Yes, I will tell it you. "'But get up from your knees and sit down. "'That's right,' he said as Harold obeyed mechanically. "'Have a cigar. "'I can recommend the brand. 
Harold took out his cigar case, and his father's ghost selected a cigar from him and lit it with a wisp of paper. End of chapter 3, part 2